Hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. Tonight, I should say this is because of, I'm recording from tonight, or I should say today, we are talking to the owner stroke founder of CA Tuned, Mr. Igor Polischuk. Igor, firstly, thank you so much for being able to reschedule and make time for me. I know it's been a, a dodging target or a moving target, I should say, so thank you so much for making it all happen. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, with that being the case, Eagle, let's dive right in. So how did you sort of get the, the automotive bug, so to speak? Where did that all come from? Oh, that has to be from my dad. You know, he uh, he was a tool tradesman, so yep. he would make tools at the factory, and that was kind of his thing, but he was always hands-on. So growing up, you know, he would teach us whatever he could, and it's kind of like, stuck with me that's not what I wanted to do but it's just something I fell back on and it just kind of took off so is that like was when you were growing up who bought you like your build your own first lathe kind of thing with other people paying with uh, different kind of toys you just got to get a lathe at the age of four and and shut to start working on some metal over there is that what happened no well not exactly but you know we I have to say, I mean, we, we came over to the United States, to the United States, I was eight years old, and we yep. were poor. I mean, mm-hmm. we were broke. You know, we came over, we had a hundred, maybe a hundred dollars in our pockets. You know, I was, at the time, I was just eight years old, so I was just a kid. But um, I had one big advantage is because where we came from, I was taught English at a very uh, early age, so I already had a good head start. But, uh, you know, it kind of propelled me, but I also lost that, uh, you know, childhood where I didn't have to, you know, too much playtime and stuff like that. I just kind of like, well, you're the oldest, you got to just get after it. You know, that was my dad's intuition. It's like, you know, go do whatever you could. You know, so my part of it is like, you know, I cut grass, like break leaves, whatever I could to help the family, help us and try to get ahead. That's just one of those things. But um he would always tinker on stuff, whether it was, you know, something that we found on the street that was broken and try to fix it up and, you know, do something with it or whether it was the family car or whatever, whatever it took, basically. Okay. So, so speaking of that, then, so when it got to like the family car, what are the first things you remember like working on and so forth or you'd help your dad out with? Oh, you know, axle braking on the, on the family minivan, you know, on the side of the road where we had a road trip. It didn't matter. You know, we, we just had to do it right there and there. My dad had a little bag of tools. You know, he would bring it out. And, I, you know, I, I assisted. And so, so as as things sort of move on and you grow a little bit older, so I guess that from what I understand, you weren't really going to head down this sort of working with your hands path, well, kind of working with your hands, but sort of in a different field. What kind of field was or where were you going originally with your, your career progressions? No, originally I was uh, going to school for uh, computer information sciences. I actually got a bachelor's degree in that. So I was working, doing IT work. But that changed so much during that time when I, when I just graduated to the time that I stopped doing it because everything in IT was going over to India and going over to China and all these other countries where in the U.S. it was like, you know, it was pretty much like, oh, what you have in a degree for, we don't need you. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I was more unemployed and more laid off than I was actually working. You know, so I just started to said, you know, we were 
I was always tinkering on something, but that was also the time where the Fast and Furious stuff came out and all the, you know, the body kit era and, the, you know, the neon glows and everything like that. So, you know, being unemployed, you kind of have time. So yep. I was on the internet looking for stuff, you know, thinking, well, I really like this. I like this. I like that, you know, kind of researching or well, where can I buy this? How can I do this? I didn't really have the money, but, you know, I had the drive. And so uh, back at that time, you know, we would buy, you know, cars that needed work, fix them up, make them clean, you know, make them reliable. And then we would try to sell them and make a couple bucks. Um, what were those first cars that you sort of figuring out then to try and be able to do the flip on them, so to speak, and be able to make a little bit of pocket money for yourself? You know, at the time, it was very, you know, the Japanese, uh, the JDM cars were, you know, they were popular and reliable and they didn't need much and parts are cheap. So we were deep into everyday cars like, you know, Civics, we was, you know, 92 to 95 EGs, you know, and then the EKs and some Prelude stuff. And then we would do Corollas, what really, you know, stuff that we knew wasn't going to lose value. You know, and at the beginning, it was just me and my cousin James. And then we got a little small shop. It was uh, maybe 900 square feet, not very big, a little small, tiny office. And that's, um, you know, I remember buying an 89 Honda Civic. That was one of the first cars we bought. We fixed it up. You know, I think we had like 500 bucks in it. And we sold it for $1,800. And I said, let's buy more. <laughs> um, and it was a lot of hours. But in that first year, you know, we went from having that one car to, you know, building and, you know, maybe like 18 cars a year later. That, that's yeah. just what it was. You know, it was, it was constantly buying stuff that we could turn around, and, you know, turn $300 to $1,500. And that's what it was. Um, but stuff, you know, at that time, the economy was good. So stuff would sell pretty quick, you know, and it's in that range where people would need financing because it's, it's a cheap car, you know, it's four or $5,000. And if you yep. put it on Craigslist, a lot of times when we put it on Craigslist, we would get immediately within five minutes, the phone would ring. Oh, can you hold it for me? It, it was a wild time. It was just like, we hit that target market at the right time. But, you know, it's not what ideally what I wanted to do, but it was just um, it kind of fed the creativity in my mind, you know, and it allowed me to purchase some stuff and try to, you know, do some stuff. But, you know, we started doing some accessories and, you know, shift knobs and neon glow. And it's kind of funny, but, you know, fiberglass body kits, body club stuff, you know, it was just that was that was the era. Of course, yeah. And it's like you said, it's always nice to, to, especially if you're working on cars, to get cars, move them in and move them out, so to speak, right? Because then you know you're seeing yourself being successful. You see your goals that are sort of coming through and it sort of helps sort of with that mentality of keeping the business up and running. And so all that's really positive in regards to, to keeping things going, correct? Yeah. And then we were always in Sacramento, always in, Cal you know, here in California. So, you know, it's LA obviously is the like the, car mecca as a lot of people would say but you know sacramento for car stuff 
there's still a big scene. So for us at the time, you know, doing like what I would say, car flips and selling car parts and stuff, you know, it was challenging. It wasn't like there was no cars and coffee back then. So it's not like you could come out and say, Hey, this is what I do or no talk to folks. You just kind of have to invent yourself and really work hard. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously back then there'd be no social media, no Instagram, no status in regards to that. It was all word of mouth. And like you said, Craigslist, Uh, I remember Craigslist and shopping for cars on Craigslist. And now they charge you $5. It's a funny world. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's totally different, uh, totally different world, you know, and, and a lot of times too, Craigslist didn't have the bad, you know, the bad culture involved with it. It's like, you know, back then people kind of were more trusting and, you know, it was more up and coming type of site because it was new. Yeah. I mean, what is it now? It's it's either I know what my car's worth or I know your car's worth. Even though you've got to advertise 20000 I'll give you $500 because that's all it's worth. One of two, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, I mean, a lot of times now people are keeping a lot of that stuff and there's not so much stuff being sold in quality stuff let's put it that way you know back then there was um you know the quality stuff you could you know you could sell quickly yeah i mean also i guess these days you're not going to be able to find yourself an 89 civic for 500 dollars, or if you go it's probably going to need a little bit more work than what you would have put in back in the day yeah then i mean cars have definitely appreciated especially old cars now it's like oh you've got a collector you know you've got a collector piece and back then it was like okay well we're going to buy this car and even though it's nice we're going to chop it up and use it to build three others and we didn't even think about it it was like okay i need a fender from this car or i need a bumper from this or i need the mo- that you know the if it was like a 92 civic outside that was like a desirable motor it was like okay well i got it cheap enough i can pull the motor out put it on craigslist and just the motor's going to pay for the whole entire car and i still have the rest of it to part out you know and, that and, was then, one of those things. and so when did it go from like a working sort of garage, so to speak, as I would call it, um, into more of like a, a, a focused of where you saw the vision would go? How long did it take after, uh, after say, flipping cars and working a couple of years? When did you sort of get that desire just to focus on like one brand at that time? Well, you know, at that time we were, what we did was just not flip cars. We also did some service for some other shops in the area okay. where we had a deal with a couple dealer accounts, um, you know, bigger dealer lots that would sell used cars and they needed, you know, an inspection done or brakes done. And so I said, you know, let's make that deal and do that little services, but it would be residual income and it would be like, okay, you know, we know we're going to make, you know, three to $4,000 extra every month. And we just have to do a couple services here and there for those guys. And one of those things is uh, one of those guys decided to retire. And so he's like, why don't you buy my, my shop? So at the time, I ended up buying his shop. You know, I think it was like 18000 bucks. It wasn't too much money yep. at the time. And But I really just bought it for the clientele because he had an established business. He had clientele, but he had old equipment. And I said, well, if I buy it, I can put new equipment in. And, you know, possibly double the, the business outcome and use that platform. Um, and so that's what I did. I just bought it. And then, you know, at the time it was called Honda Heaven and we did a lot of Honda. So it was like, okay, well, this is kind of weird, but it works. 
you know, and after about a year of being there, I kind of renamed it to Auto Heaven because I said, well, we're, we don't want to limit ourselves. You know, we want to accept, you know, more clients. But we've always did, you know, a lot of BMWs just personally. You know, I had a E30 back in high school, you know, and then I had one of our first E30s that I bought, which was actually a four-door car, but we we still have that car. We still have it here. And it's, I don't think we would ever get rid of it, but it's just like one of those cars that I bought and fell in love with it. And we just learned on it and built stuff off of it. And it was a great platform. And um, the Sea Tomb name, it, it always stuck. I never got rid of it. And I think, uh, you know, I eventually I said, you know, I'm just going to launch it and see what, what happens to it. You know, I opened a small little tiny website. We put, you know, a few things on there. And it was just kind of there. We went, you know, once in a while we would sell little things or, you know, not. It didn't really matter because we had our service side of it where that would make, you know, pay our bills and help with everyday stuff. But I bought an E30, a coupe that I decided to restore for myself. And I slowly started building it, putting, you know, a swap into it. And back then, a swap was a big deal. You know, you put a different motor in it. It was like one of those new things. Yep. So uh, some folks had stopped by our shop and took some pictures. And the next thing you know, it's all over the internet. You know, Instagram was just starting out and it was just like, Oh, this is a big deal. This guy's crazy. He's rebuilding an E30 where you can buy at the time you could buy it for like, you know, three or four grand. It was no big deal. Mm -hmm. Perfectly nice car. And here I am putting like, you know, 20 grand into a car. that's worth five, (laughs) you know, and uh, that's really what kind of propelled me towards that because we had so many people interested in that car, uh, trying to figure out what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I said, well, if other people are interested in that, let me, you know, I'd rather it, them get in the, the information from me than a third party. And that's when I started, you know, kind of putting that more out there and, you know, trying to build a brand. And that's kind of like snowballed after that. Of course. So when we talk about the builds that you've done, then, I mean, how many uh, projects would you say that you've put together now over the time when since you've been seriously working on them and putting them out there for the people to see? Oh, I mean, for clients, I can't I can't even put a number on it, you know, and it's just the whole time. we, You know, I would have to say, in all honesty, you know, looking from the outside in, a lot of people think we're like this huge company. We have like 30 people. but We've always been small, you know, at the most we've been is maybe five, six people. You know, one of that, it's just, it's hard to hire the correct people on to do the stuff that we do. And it's a niche market because, you know, not only so many people know these cars. And then so many, only so many of those handful of those people even want to work on those cars. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, back in, like I was, I was mentioning back in the day, those cars didn't work you know, a couple of thousand. Now they're starting to be worth like a lot. Um, but, you know, I remember, you know, the E30M3s, you know, they were, they're great cars, but they were only worth like 10, 12 grand back in the day. You know, yes. and I had a ton of, I would always sell them. And now they're all of a sudden they're $50,000 or, you know, you get the coveted Evo that all of a sudden it's 250 grand. Um I mean, obviously, you can't look in the future and say, oh, this car is going to be worth so much. You know, back then, nobody even thought. 
that that's going to happen. But uh, yeah, I mean, we've built, to get to the question, we've built a lot. But on average, we restore about eight a year. Okay. You know, that's ground up restoration. So somebody comes to us and uh, we pick and choose. You know, we're pretty upfront about that because, you know, sometimes what people don't realize is, you know, they're hiring us to build their car. But if their thoughts or their wants are not realistic, it's just not going to work because at the end of the day, maybe their budget is not there or maybe uh you know what they want built with the car is just not cohesive with what we're known for for example you know the simplest way to put this is if somebody wants a nut and bolt oem restoration just like the car came out of the factory we're probably not the best shop for that and the only reason i say that is because we're, we're known for more for rest of mods and you know kind of doing unorthodox stuff you know, we, we were known for putting stuff that purists cringe, you know, into classic BMWs. I mean, one of the early builds we've done is a BMW 2002, and we put a Honda S2000 motor in it. Back then, that was one of the first ones, and people hated us for that. I mean, we got calls, and we got death threats for it. So, so it's a weird place when you get a death threat for putting a a, a, weird, a Japanese engine in a German car. I mean, honestly, when you think yeah. it's, German, it's like, really, really, yeah, yeah. But it still it still happens. You know, sometimes I'll post it on social media and I'll either throw back or another build that we're doing with that swap. And we to this day we still get people that are just like, oh, that's blasphemous. Or you can't, why would you do that? You know, it's like, but you know, just that swap we've sold dozens and dozens of our engine swap mounts for that for that swap you know to, to guys in austria and to guys in japan and all over the world it's like you know i'm to this day i'm still surprised how many people want those mounts to be able to put that engine in that car it's like you know but uh yeah that's why that's why i say you know it's, it has to work cohesively like for the owner of the car and then for us too it it really is, uh, you know, two people or two company and the, the owner working together. That's why you see so many builds a lot of times in shops just sitting and sitting and sitting because they're really just doing the guy a favor and then he doesn't realize it and it's just not a good fit. And so it's really hard. It has to work. Yeah, and so when things do work, for example, and you find that person that's got the right and you get that right synergies, I mean – what is sort of the the effort and the the going into something of like putting a program together for a build and if for example say it's going to be going to like a big show like say the SEMA show I mean how does that all fit into it and how does that all work well yeah there's a I mean typically how we start out is just you know in the past it's either an email or a simple phone call mm -hmm. and then it's like an idea okay well I've got this car and I want to do this this and this to it you know, and then we try to formulate a budget because budget is important. We have to stick on to that because we are not going to assume that somebody has X amount of dollars. We just don't know. But yes. at the same time, you know, we have to be able to, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. So we have to make some money and we have to be able to be here tomorrow. So we have to make some money. Um, and then if it's going in the direction that we're, we're going to take it to a big show or SEMA, 
at the end of the day, we're putting our name on it. So we have to make sure that we're doing the best we can. Uh, SEMA for a lot of people or for a lot of years wasn't an easy thing to achieve. But me personally, I've been going there since 2004 and I, I love the show. You know, and my I, personal thing was I, I'm going to get a car into SEMA. <laughs> you know, and I had no idea how to do it, but I really, you know, I wanted a car there. And so uh, back in the day, I had a blue E30 and I said, you know, this is the one I'm going to get into the show. So I talked to a number of people. And at, back then, it was, it's still a majority of it is American made cars at SEMA. Yes. You know, yeah. You, you, you have to agree with that. It's you know, absolutely 100% agree. Of, yes. Yeah, Chevy, Camaro, you know, Ford. Unless, you know. unless maybe, for example, Toyota release a Supra, and then there's 60 Supras there. Maybe that's the year where it goes a little bit differently. Yeah, or the the Toyota FRS. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when I was approaching a lot of the customer, a lot of the you know companies, they're like, "Well, we don't make any products for the E30. So what are we going to display? You know, if you're bringing a car to SEMA and we're paying the money to have that spot filled." what do we get out of it? You know, and the other part of it was just like a blunt, blunt statement. Like nobody wants an E30 or let alone a BMW at a SEMA. I was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, but it ended up happening because I got a hold of, you know, a wheel manufacturer, Rotiform, mm-hmm. and they built a set of wheels for the car. And then, you know, I'm talking to uh, airlift Brian uh, there and, and airlift was great. They're like, okay, you know, you, you have our management on the car that works great. And you've got Rotiform and they were, you know, talking to each other. So it was like, let's do it. Why not? And I got the car there and I got a great spot. It was a feature spot, but it was right outside the main hole where all the cars were lined up and it was in the first row. So you couldn't miss it. And it's Estro Blue. So it's like a light blue color, great wheels, you know, and I've got, the hood off the car so i wanted to display the engine because it had the the individual throttle bodies itvs and it played great there was such a huge crowd around the whole car the entire time some photographers couldn't get pictures of the car because of the amount of people in front of it and so then i approached the companies and i said look look at the outcome you know you said there's no reason to bring a bmw here so it's just you know i think it was more of like a culture shock but um, you know, since then it's been just. But that you know, in reality, that pushed me since then to just become a better builder, and push myself on you know harder and harder and become better. If I can and say then, that. No, sure. But then, how much would you say, for example, is the SEMA crunch real, where it's that last minute trying to touch things up before it goes rolls onto the showroom floor? Yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, there is a crunch time. A lot of that is that depending on, if you're depending on somebody's parts, for example, if you're waiting on your wheels and the wheels are, you know, this is the nerve wracking part is because you've never, you know, maybe you've seen a render of it, of a picture or whatever, or drawing, but until you get those wheels in and what if it's the day before you have to leave and you put those wheels on and you're just praying and hoping that it fits <laughs> because obviously you measured everything. You never yes. know. Yeah. And so, you know, what if UPS or FedEx is delayed or loses it? That's just like, you know, uh, 
crazy what if scenario, but it, it happens. You know, we've had um, wheels where, you know, it's not the wheel manufacturer's fault, but something got missed. And so they're like, oh, they're a little, you know, they stick out just a little too far. And you're just like, what am I going to do? And, you know, you've got two days before you have to leave. Well, that's just not enough time for anything to happen. You just have to figure things out. Um, the crunch time is real. It, it's happened. I mean, one of our cars, we're, we're getting ready to leave for SEMA, and we're like, okay, we're going to leave, you know, half a day early to get there on time because, you know, when you're displaying a car at SEMA, they want you there like three days early, sometimes four days early because you have to consider they have to line up your car and then other cars have to be lined up behind you or whatever, whatever the, the, the roll call is. So we're loading and, up the and car. And then I was going to say, from what I remember as well, when people get in there, people can run out of fuel, obviously things like that. The cars sometimes don't work. They might be have like Bluetooth transmissions and need to get pushed. And it's never never a pleasant uh, experience of loading cars in, as far as I understand, unless you can like hand yeah, it off to that, that, and walk away. Yeah, that's Bluetooth spark plugs and Bluetooth wires. <laughs> yeah, cars are not exactly all together, you know. And sometimes, you know, the thought in my mind is like, I don't want to let down my partners, uh, you know, that gave me the opportunity to bring the car to the show. And, you know, I made them promise. And the last thing I want to do is not show up. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the car there. But it, it definitely, things have gone wrong, you know, whether it's just you're just so tired because you're, you know, 14, 15 hour days, you're loading the car and things get scratched or whatever. And you're just like, okay. I got to make this happen. And so, how many cars have you had now that have actually been displayed, for example, then at SEMA? Uh, we've had, let's see, the, the most cars we've had in one year was four cars. But we've had um, maybe a dozen cars at SEMA at this point. Um, some of them were from our off road team. Uh, but with our sports compact stuff, is what we're, our category is. Yeah, we've had good amount, you know, and we've been fortunate in that, uh, like I said, because we're one of a few classic BMW builders, you know, we kind of stand out, which is a good way. Um, but it's it's enjoyable for me when I started entering into the battle of the builders, which is a different, you know, kind of works incohesively or together with SEMA. Mm -hmm. That's what really started pushing me farther as a builder because some people think well it's just a show if if you haven't been to SEMA you think it's just another gathering you know but the best way I can describe it is if you go to SEMA and you're there the whole all four days you're not going to see everything you can walk around the show every day for 10 hours and you're not you're going to still miss something and it's it's massive it's buildings and buildings and there's upstairs outside it's just it's a lot of stuff and it's cool, but displaying the cars at SEMA, Battle of the Builders, is what really pushed me forward to being a better builder. It's as crazy as it sounds. For me, that's what's worked. Because yeah. when I was in the first year, it's like, oh, I got in top 40. You know, out of thousands of cars, you get into top 40, that's already crazy, and that's good. But I, I, I took it as a positive thing and not as a negative thing, because then I talked to the judges, and I said, where what do I need to do to improve? Where did I miss the mark or what do I need to do? And then I looked at cars that got into the top 12 and I looked at cars that won. 
I said, what did those guys do that I didn't do? And where can I make those changes and make it better? And, you know, it's really propelled me to be a better builder, and not just for me, but for my clients too, you know, because there's no school that teaches you, you know, how to put <laughs> these sort of things together and make it just cohesively work and just blow people away. It, it, it comes from experience. Yeah. And I mean, especially when you get caught into that battle of the builders, just to be included in itself is really the feather in one's cap. I mean, the names of the people that are in the competition and that have won it in the past, I mean, it's truly a, a who's who. And you and you probably spotted in saying it's mostly of um, people that build some of probably the best cars in the world. So being included in that list really is a real achievement. And then trying to, as you said, try and work and understand where you can improve upon that. I mean, it's really, the work you do is truly incredible and the cars you put together are truly magnificent. Let's be honest and say that. Well, thank you. And, you know, um, it's been a humbling experience. And some of the guys in the battle, the builders too, the, one of the bigger builders there, you know, they're, some of them have gotten Riddler awards and all these other much bigger achievements, but they're super humble. And you talk to them, it's like talking to, you know, an average Joe. And it's it's just been a phenomenal experience because I got to meet those guys and talk to them, and some of them have become really good friends. Yeah, it'd be good as well, like you said, we've got to pick their brains to understand and see the differences in what they've done, and maybe how you can incorporate it for future work, or try and learn something, or talk to them about how to do something differently, or get their idea on something. It'd also be really handy as well, I suppose. And as you say, making them becoming close friends now through the process would be great. Yeah, it has been. And, you know, you stay in touch with those people because it's, it's you know, you kind of form a bond and it's like everybody's, nobody's, there's not that stigma like, oh, you put that in the car, like, you know, with the Honda transplant, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of it in the, in the hot rail world, it's a little different, you know, somebody can have a Ford with a Chevy engine and it's normal. But as soon as you put a Honda engine in the BMW, all, all of a sudden you're getting death threats. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. You know, <laughs> you know, one of my cars, it's kind of funny, but it plays on that because I got a license plate, a custom seat, you know, like California license plate that says on it, Ricer. <laughs> and it's a derogatory term in a lot of the automotive world saying that you have a car that's junk or, you know, built wrong. But I did it on purpose and the car is super clean. You know, it's yeah. just like you have to at some point you have to understand that somebody's building their car. They're building it their way. They're not on your level. They're they're not on my level. They might not be on Chip Foose's level or somebody else's level. You know, they're doing the best they can. And maybe they love it and good for them. At the end of the day, this is about the, the enjoyment they get back from building that. They're learning something. I mean, I agree with what they're doing, but at the end of the day, who am I to call them and give them death threats? Exactly. It's like if they enjoy what they've created or what they're wanting to create, all power to them, and that's the way it should be. If that's what they like, then there's enough places, enough likes, and enough uh, love in this world where everyone should be able to enjoy things rather than get all the hate that's sometimes dished out to certain people for specific things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I wish more people would understand that. but. You know, it's. I think it's part of it is the internet. You know, it's too easy to be an in, intern, internet warrior. Just exactly. click away. It's, 
it's very easy to be negative on the internet. It's a lot more difficult to do something in real life that's uh, productive and uh, that you're proud of, so to speak. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So, but you did touch on it though. But you do have uh, CA Tuned doesn't just focus on BMW. You've got different, obviously, aspects of the business that sort of branched out over the years. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that sort of came about and to go into those different areas? Yeah, sure. So my uh, my younger brother, Max, he's, you know, we're really close, but we're, you know, we're like 12 months apart. So as siblings, you know, we're sibling rivalries and everything goes well, but we get along really well. Um, He's always been into the off-road stuff. You know, he's had an Isuzu Trooper that he's put a diesel swap into it and lifted it and all this stuff. And we worked together for a number of years. He worked in the shop. He's very talented. And he started getting more and more into the off-road stuff and bringing that into the shop. And it just got so much that it was like, I told him, I was like, dude, I got no space. <laughs> you got to do something. So eventually you know, he opened another uh, location, you know, separate from mine, just so we can have our own space and, you know, sanity. <laughs> and I uh, said, you know, why don't you just keep the name, you know, work off of it, because it's at this point, you know, the brand works, and just call it C-Tune Off-Road, make it simple. And uh, we opened a separate website for him and se separate Instagram, and it's it's been hitting, but his, uh, you know, we've brought a couple cars or a couple vehicles that he's built over to SEMA as well. Um, you know, we had an FJ60 with the, you know, Cummins swap in it at SEMA in the Toyo uh, booth right outside uh, the hall. And they did wonderful. And it was a really a good build. And then he's got done um, some builds uh, for Hyundai with the off-road stuff. So it's it's been wonderful. It's been great. And now his concentration and what the shop's concentrating stuff is on the overlanding stuff because it's so huge with the sprinters and the, the Ford, uh, you know, vans. He's building custom bumpers and lights and that sort of stuff. It's it's just, it's a huge world. You know, everybody wants to overland now. <laughs> it's not just a hobby. You know, it's like, Get in the van. We're going to go, you know, road tripping through the whole United States. I know. It's kind of like instead of just a hobby for weekends now, it's more like a lifestyle, it seems like, coming on from 2020. Oh, it's been huge. You know, it's like and everybody's doing it. It's a huge market because now, you know, you bought a, a Sprinter van and it's four by four. So you can take it off road. And then but you don't want to stop there. So you want a bumper and then it has a winch and extra lights, you know. So you want to outfit that and then you want solar panels on top and then you want to have a kitchen in there and a bed. So all of a sudden you're, you know, you've got a mobile house basically on wheels. Literally. Yep. A mobile home on wheels. And so um, what, I mean, obviously you've got different websites as well that, that play to some of your different markets that you've talked about. Obviously you've got the, the one that's focuses like on Europe, I think. And have you got another one that focus on, on the Russian market as well? Yeah, so last year, and this has been a couple years in the making, you know, you've got to find the right people that, you know, work with you and, you know, have the same, not just the mindset, but the same drive. You know, we, we, we obviously with our stuff and all the parts that we make, we ship worldwide. But sometimes it makes more sense to have strategic warehousing and stuff like that to where it's easier to ship, low, you know, more local. 
mm-hmm. and so we opened Seatune uh, Russia, which is based in the capital, which is Moscow. And so we have two guys that work for us there, and then they're distributing some of our parts there. And that's been very, it's been a hard road to get things open in Russia. It's, you know, it's it's not like the United States. A lot of stuff has to be, you know, a lot of hoops to jump through. And then um, a couple of months, you know, from that, we opened Seatune in Ukraine, and that's also in a big city. It's in Odessa, which is a big uh, seaport city. And then we're also um, got Germany going a little slow, but it's it's moving. You know, it's going to take it's it's got its own challenges. And so with that, there's a big learning curve. But we've got really really good people involved, and so that's the the majority of that is just you know been locating the correct people that you can trust, and at the same time you know being able to believe in the same thing you believe in using you know quality parts speak for themselves. Of course, and I will say I can't imagine it must be easy to set up a, a, a like a separate company of sorts that you work with or that you are part, involved in in another country, let alone three different countries at the same time, sort of running them all together. I mean, it must be uh, you, your email inbox must be rather unique coming on a Monday morning, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, me personally, I've always since you know since I was driven from young age to always work. I kind of have a hard time separating from my work, you know, separating from my phone and being able to answer emails on my phone. But, you know, I'm just kind of like working. But uh, it, it works, you know. And in Canada, we also have uh, a, a good partner of us, a distributor. And we don't have see you tune you know, see you tune Canada, but we have, you know, our partner, which is Delta Parcado. And, you know, they do the same thing we do here, but they do it up in Canada and they're on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know Dominic runs that, and he's just great. That that's what he does. He you know he carries our parts, he stocks them, and if somebody orders something from Canada, he ships it directly to them, and so that saves people money because at the end of the day, the exchange rates are so crazy. You know, you're if you're talking about Canada, you know it's eighty cents on the dollar. So something that's a hundred dollars is all of a sudden it's a hundred twenty. You know, Canadian. Yep. And so. You know, we're trying to do whatever we can at the end of the day to save those people money. So if we have the parts there and we're saving that 20%, now we can offer them the same, you know, the same part at the same price. So that that's what it's all about. And, you know, obviously at the end of the day, we want to, you know, establish our brand a little more. But uh, we also want to make sure that, you know, we do right for the customer and they can get, you know, the parts faster and, the stuff that they want of course and so with that being the case then i mean what's can you talk a little bit about what's in the future for you guys or what have you all got planned for what's next yeah so uh in the last three years we've been focusing on some a lot of our cooling products so we've done really really well with that a lot of our products carry a lifetime a limited lifetime warranty which means that for the life that you own it we'll cover it obviously it doesn't cover abuse so if that part, you know, damages because of an accident or because of, uh, you know, you accidentally cut it or whatever, then, you know, or damage it, we won't cover that. But if it fails for some reason, we'll cover it. But we've been really good about R&D and testing things. You know, our return rate and just overall warranty rate is less than half percent. You know, we really try to offer a really good product that 
we're happy to put on our cards, but at the same time, you know, if we send it to say, for example, Spain, you know, the last thing we want to do is, you know, warranty that part out because it's just the shipping alone is going to cost us an arm and a leg. Of course. And so, yeah, the cooling products with our hoses, you know, a lot of these older cars, like the classics, a lot of the cooling hoses, you can't even buy new. They're just been just obsolete. So a lot of guys have been buying used hoses that are good and putting them on their cars just to be able to drive them. So with us, what we've done is found those new hoses and made molds from them and made silicone hoses that are lifetime warranty now, and they can put them on their car as a full kit and not have to worry about it. Which would make things a lot easier, right? Obviously, if you've got that at your disposal, you don't have to worry about your hoses again. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a critical part. You know, you got to keep your car on the road. You can't, you know, you don't want to overheat. And so the critical part is the hoses. And the regular rubber stuff only lasts a certain amount of years. So we've got, you know, five-layer silicone stuff. That's going to last, you know, basically transfer over to their kids. Why not? And then what else about what else have you gotten to go? Uh, you know, we're we've been building our coilovers for a while. We're still doing that. Um, we're kind of expanding with the number of things that we're building. Uh, we've got brake stuff that we're doing. Um, we we still make bushings. There's a lot of parts that we make, but uh, we've got um, distribution from Norway for a lot of the metal parts. So if you've got an older classic, you know, BMW that needs, you know, floorboards because they're rusted out, you know, we've got the brand new floor pieces that you can buy from us and, you know, weld in new floor pieces. And, you know, if you need a fender or quarter panel, we're stocking that now and we're going to be able to, you know, sell it to you and you can, you know, not only build your car, but put in new, you know, metal pieces to, to go along with that. So, I mean, it sounds like you're going to be really busy then from what it what, what I can tell. Yeah, we're already busy, but, you know, it, it's definitely fun. I still haven't lost my, you know, like excitement over it because, you know, a lot of people say, well, shucks, it's Monday, you know, I have to go back to work. For me, you know, it's like a lot of times I can't wait to get to Monday because that means I get to do what I like. So there's definitely an excitement. Even after all these years, I'm still loving it. And so with that being the case, Igor, if people who are, who are obviously not being on the internet or anything like that, but want to try and track you down uh, online on social media and so forth, they haven't yet. Where's the best place to find you guys? You know, it's it's crazy because a lot of guys still don't know about us, but, uh, you know, we, you know, we've gotten some people over from magazines. It's interesting because you know, guys will, we have some magazines, you know, either performance BMW or, you know, some of the other, you know, BMW magazines out in Europe, you know, if they display one of our cars, we'll, it seems like that works too, because we'll get some phone calls or emails, you know, and they said, oh, I just found out about you guys. And after all these years, you know, there's still a lot of people on this earth, you know, not everybody knows you. So sometimes it's just word of mouth. And then what about you know, the, the across social media, if they're looking for you on social media? Social media, yeah, we're on uh, we're on social media. We're at you know everything is at CA Tuned. So you okay. know if you're talking um, just the main page, we're at CA Tuned. If it's Russia, it's you know at CA Tuned. Are you you know Ukraine is CA Tuned UA UA uh, Germany it's CA Tuned D. So it's abbreviated, but you can, if you type in CA Tuned, it'll just come up. 
Um, same thing for our off-road guys, you know, C2 and off-road. It's pretty pretty easy. You know, the whole thing, you know, we're in California, so that's what we thought about, you know, C2 and kind of tuning or building cars. That's where the name came from. Well, that's wonderful. Igor, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you tonight. Um, and I've obviously really enjoyed our conversation, and, and I'm really look. I'm sure all my list, all our listeners will too. So, with that being the case, Igor, I'll let you sign off, and I'd like to thank you again, and obviously thank all the listeners out there for listening who like and subscribe. And as always, we'll just uh, see you all next time with another guest. But Igor, thanks again for your time; it's much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs>